We were in Hebrews for a while. And uh, it kind of feels weird, but I'm trying this new thing where I do Facebook Live on Sunday mornings. So if you're ever sick and you're sitting at home, I'm trying to do that as long as the, the internet holds up. And uh, Steve can attest with me that we've had lots of problems with our internets. But on Sunday mornings, God's been very gracious. So we have Facebook Live going on. As you can see, it's very high tech with an iPad sitting up here. But just basically for anybody that's shut in. And I know there are several people that can't come on Sunday mornings. So that said, we're in the book of James. And in James, uh, we have what I have called uh, basically the Proverbs of the New Testament. I don't know if you guys know, but any, any Christian circle you run in, you're going to have individuals that will have Bible verses that they quote constantly. And what James is really good for is he should have been like an advertiser because he's got all these one-liners that are easy to remember, and they're good practical tips to carry along, not only in your pocket to throw at other people, but in your, in your heart to kind of let God check your heart before you wreck yourself. You know, they're, they're real practical they're real easy to memorize, and, and they're good tips that we all need to take to heart. So it's called Faith, Faith That Works, the book of James. So let's start first and foremost by talking about James himself. Who is James? Well, I have there for you, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He was Jewish. Now, many New Testament, American Christians especially, don't realize that our faith is Judeo-Christian that the first believers were first Jewish, and then they converted to Christianity, but a lot of the stuff that they knew as part of their Judaism actually helped them to fully understand what Christ came to do. We're kind of robbed of that, right? We don't, you know, we, I was talking to a guy yesterday. He said, I've read most of the Old, Old Testament, but I skip over Leviticus because I just don't know what to do with it. But Leviticus is all about Jesus, it's all about the sacrificial system. And I talked about last week how if you had to make a sacrifice and kill an animal every time you sinned and wanted to go get that thing dealt with, you would recognize that sin brings forth death. And death is messy, and it's gruesome, and it's bloody, and it would make you not want to do it anymore. And so James is Jewish. He's the half-brother of Jesus. We know this from Mark chapter 6, verse 2 through 3. It lists off, you know, they, they, they basically said, say, and I'm going to read there, who is this man that's claiming to be God or the Messiah? Isn't he just a carpenter's son? You know, and we live in a small town, so if you've ever done anything great, you know, maybe you've had that set of you where it's like, isn't that just, you know, so-and-so's kid? He's from that family. And, and that's kind of, they had contempt for Jesus because he was from a family that they knew and was from Nazareth. And so as I take forever to get there in Mark chapter 6, verse 2 through 3, that's what they said about Jesus. Um, they said, it says there, when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get this wisdom? Where did he get these things? They were kind of amazed at what he taught. And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? They recognized that there was something special about him. And yet what they say in verse 3 is, is this not just some carpenter's kid, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? 
It's one thing to see somebody on TV, you know, everybody knows who Tim Tebow is, right? So maybe we go, wow, what a great football player. He got the Heisman Trophy, and he's, he's still doing all these great works for the Lord, and his parents were missionaries, and wow. But maybe if you knew him growing up, you might be tempted to go, yeah, but I saw how he was raised, and I knew him when he used to do this or that, and I saw him when he did this at a party, or whatever he might have done when he was growing up would cause you to try to discredit what he's doing now. And, and so we can easily do that, but what we know is that if you, were, if you or I were going to... Um, I'll stop there. Basically, he's, he's the half-brother of Jesus, so to me, the fact that he becomes a follower of Jesus lends more credibility than somebody that didn't know him at all. Because you know your siblings, right? You, you know the people that you grow up with and you go, uh, you're going to be more skeptical of them because you just know them so well. Uh, but what we find out is that he grew up with Jesus and yet John chapter 7 verse 5 says that none of his siblings believed in him, including James. So while Jesus was alive and well and doing miracles, uh, his own brother who witnessed them Oftentimes you hear people say, well, if I saw a miracle from God, then I'd believe in him. But James was his half-brother, lived with him his entire life, was probably annoyed by the fact that he never would get involved in the trouble they were stirring up. Like, who needs a goody-two-shoe brother? Those guys are despised more than anything. Won't you just come out with us and sneak out tonight? We're going to go have some fun. No, I want to honor my mother and father. Oh, that guy. But after the resurrection, we find out that he becomes a believer. And in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about this. Paul knew James personally. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 3, it says this, For I delivered to you, Paul writing, says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then by the twelve, the apostles. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. They were still alive when Paul wrote this. But some have fallen asleep, meaning they have died. Verse 7 says, After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So he says, look at this, of all the people he could appear to, and he, it, it lists all these people, he actually appeared to his brother. He wanted to appear to him and say, hey, I wasn't messing with you. I wasn't being that older brother. I, I, I'm the Messiah. And here's, I, I've, you saw me killed, and here I am alive. You know, and he even said to one of his apostles, he said, you know, if you don't believe it's me, why don't you touch the scars in my hand? He still bears those scars for eternity. He ate with them. He wasn't an emanation. He was physically there. They could touch him. They could shake hands with him. They could hug him. I mean, how cool would that be? They watched him brutally murdered. They were broken down because they watched him die. The person in whom they had placed all their hope and their trust, and yet here he is physically going, here I am, Thomas. Touch the hole in my side. Um, and so, but, but, okay, so assume that you're in James's spot and you're going to write a letter to the church and you have this authority, you wholeheartedly believe that your half-brother is the Son of God, he's the Messiah that the Old Testament told about, and now you're writing a letter to a group of people you want to convince. 
And so James doesn't do what I would have done, which would have been name-dropping. He doesn't say, uh, James, half-brother of Jesus, or James, I grew up with that guy. He says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a bondservant. Another translation might say a bond slave. I'm his, I'm surrendered to doing what he tells me to do. I don't know too many younger siblings that go, I'm going to do whatever my older brother says, unless they are convinced that he's worthy of following. And he, so he says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never even drops in there that, by the way, I grew up with him, and he's kind of my brother, we're kind of tight. He doesn't, he doesn't see that as important. He sees it as important as saying, I, I don't identify with him in any way. I, I'm not even worthy. I'm a bond slave. I willingly am serving him because I recognize who he is. So he's writing to, um, or he's, he's writing as a bond slave. And what we find out is in Acts chapter 15, he actually becomes this mediator between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and at the time, they figure out that the Gentiles can actually be saved by the Jewish Messiah. Peter finds this out. He gets a vision from the Lord. Uh, God tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And there's this big blanket that's unfolded like a picnic blanket of all these animals that they've never been allowed to eat as Jewish people. And it wasn't about going hunting. It was, a, it was a message to Peter saying, hey, there's people getting ready to come to you and you used to think they were unclean because you're Jewish and they're Gentiles, but don't call what God has made clean, unclean. I have made it possible for all men to be saved. That includes these people that you once thought were less than, that it's available to all. And so he gives him this message. I, there's these people coming to you. They're God-fearers. We need you to... T- I, I want you to go and tell them about Jesus and what he's done for you. And so Peter responds. He has this interaction with them. He sees the Holy Spirit poured out upon the Gentiles. He sees them glorifying God with their lips, that they're becoming saved and the Holy Spirit's given to them, just like the Jews on the day of Pentecost were given the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, there's all of a sudden this tension in the church because these Gentiles are kind of wild. They don't have any rules. They're just showing up. They're eating things with blood in them. They're breaking all the laws that the Jews were used to following and having to follow. And so they get together and they have this council in Acts chapter 15 about what, what, what kind of standard do we need to set now? Because we're used to rules and these guys don't have any. They're kind of showing up. They're wild. They're going kind of crazy. And, uh, and we're kind of having the tendency to say, no, 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 you got to follow all these rules but Jesus died to free us from the law. So how do we reconcile these two extremes? And so in Acts chapter 15, they go to Jerusalem and they have this conversation with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And what we find out is that James was actually the head of the Jerusalem church. And in Acts chapter 15, they have this council called the Jerusalem Council. And then um, it says there in verse 6 of chapter 15, the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter that they'd been discussing. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, he was kind of the vocal one, he said, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. 
and he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And so now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a burden or a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor theirs nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace, the unmerited favor of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we shall be saved in the same manner as they are. And so all the multitude kept silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. They're seeing this as basically proof that God has given favor or grace through Jesus to the Gentiles. And then verse 13 says, after they had become silent. You ever been somewhere and all of a sudden there's an individual that speaks up? There are some individuals that speak up and nobody listens, right? But there are some people that hardly ever speak, but when they speak, everybody stops and listens because they know it's going to be good. You know this person. They just come into a room. Everyone knows they have wisdom. And so when they start saying something, maybe it's a patriarch in your family. Maybe it's a mom. But somebody that speaks up and just, as soon as they start speaking, everybody goes, and they listen because they're just waiting for the golden nugget that's about to come out of that person's mouth. And when they say it, everybody goes, "Uh uh-huh, that is awesome. And they just listen. James was that guy. And if you talk to Christians, most people, if you bring up the book of James, they go, I love it. Now, some of them, they're like, they got a more realistic, you know, idea of the book of James. They go, it's, it's awful hard. I don't know. You know, but there's, there's, there's this, this weight that is carried in James's voice where when he says things, people listen. And it says there that <clears throat> all the multitude kept silent and listened. After they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. And of course, they already were. And Simon has, he says, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So he's comparing what ex- they're experiencing to what the word of God says. There's a lot of wisdom in that. So James doesn't just go, well, I feel like this is a great idea. Feelings lie. Feelings are not what we should be led by. But he says this agrees with what scripture has already taught us about what would take place after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And he quotes there in verse 16, um, he says this, uh, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So he's confirming, not based on what his own understanding is. Proverbs chapter 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge or make God the priority, and he will make your path straight. He's going, okay, God, I really don't know what this is, but your word clearly says that even all the Gentiles who are called by your name, (laughs) and you're going to do all these things. So he confirms it by the word of God. So, James is a man of the word. He's the man filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we find out is that history tells us that he was a man of prayer. His nickname, by many of the old school philosophers, they called James Camel Knees. And it wasn't because he had problems with his skin. He spent a lot of time on his knees. 
He prayed for the church. He'd experienced trials. He had known what it was like to live a life of faith. It's not easy. He was unwavering in his faith. As a matter of fact, he was martyred in A.D. 62. And there are some that say, they say a lot of things, that he was in the temple. The Jews forced him out. They pushed him out of the temple, and they beat him with sticks until he died. And it is said, according to church history, that while he was dying, it was much like the death of Stephen, the first martyr. It was much like the death of Jesus, where he prayed and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So this man, it cost him to be a disciple of Jesus. It cost him to believe in his half-brother. But it was worth it to him. He was unwavering. So when he says the difficult things we're going to read in James, this wasn't just words that he said and then didn't live. These were words that he lived by. He had learned these things through the school of hard knocks. Pardon the, you know, the, the cheesy joke, but he had learned it through the, par, the, the a hard life. So who's he writing to? James chapter uh, 1, verse 1, continues and says, To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So he's writing to the 12 tribes. Where does that come from? Well, the 12 tribes are actually the 12 tribes listed, the 12 descendants of Jacob who become the headships, if you read in the Old Testament, of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's writing to 12 tribes. And every time you hear this phrase in Scripture, in the New Testament, it's referring to his Jewish brethren that are no longer in the land. They're, they're scattered. And um, the scattered, the word there is diaspora, where we get our word dispersion. And it was was always used to describe Jews living outside of the promised land, living outside of Canaan, or later Israel, and then eventually became Palestine. And now, in our present day, it's no longer Palestine, but it's referred to as the nation of Israel that was reinstated in 1948, miraculously. God used the United Nations to make this a nation that was not for hundreds of years. And so no nation has ever come back from not being a nation as many times as Israel and then made a nation once again. So that said, the scattered group there is the Jews living outside of the promised land. But the word, the Greek word for diaspora also means scattered seed. Springtime's on the way, I promise. And many of you, myself included, We've got a dog that digs up the yard, and we're going to be scattering some seed because we want to regrow that grass. So when summer comes around, we've got a little more green because apparently we like to mow. I don't, I don't understand that. We hate that we have to mow, but then we fertilize and seed, and, and then we hate the moles, and that we let our dogs, and they destroy it. But the whole point is we spread seed. But there's also going to be the picture I have for you, well, dandelions. And some of you, it makes you so angry when the dandelions pop up. I like the yellow ones. I don't like the white ones. But they come hand in hand. They're weeds. Or at least we decided they're weeds. I think that the ones that aren't weeds are really just ones that are prettier. But that said, we have the dandelions. They pop up. And when the wind blows, what happens? They spread. Next thing you know, they're all over the place. And you're cursing them inside of your mind going, and then you mow the grass. And what's that do? It spreads them more. But here's the deal. The winds of persecution in the early church did the same thing to the Jewish people that had decided to follow Jesus. Because about that time, 
<laughs> think about this. You're a Jewish person. You've decided you want to follow the Messiah. He saves you. You're telling people about it. Guess who hates you? Everyone. Because the Jews think you're blaspheming their God by calling Jesus God. And then the Gentiles hate you because you're calling them out on their sin by your lifestyle. So you're a person that literally is hated by all. The religious people, they hate you. The non-religious people, they hate you. The people of Rome said you have to worship Caesar. And you say, no, I can only worship one God. They're fine if you worship other gods. But at the time, you had to worship Caesar, the head of the state. It wasn't just not my president. It was not my God. And so with that in mind, if you didn't worship him, you were a blasphemer of Caesar. You're an enemy of the state. And so you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. And so with persecution and people calling you out, you know what you ended up doing? I'm going to move out of this town. They would move from Jerusalem. They would move from Israel. They would move anywhere else. But as a result of the persecution that they experienced, guess what happened? Everywhere they went, Jesus went with them. And what it says there in Acts chapter 12, um, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, I'm going to turn there so I don't misquote it. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, says this, Saul was consenting to his death, talking about Stephen, the first martyr. After that, it was like blood in the water when sharks are... You ever watch Shark Week? They chum the waters, and then the next thing you know, it's a feeding frenzy. The same thing was true with persecution. After they stoned to death the first Christian, there was blood in the waters, and anybody that hated Jesus... All of a sudden, it was like they were frothing at the teeth to shut down everybody else too. Hey, it's okay to kill Christians. Let's do this. And so in chapter one, or 8, verse 1, it also says, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial. But if you go down to verse 4, it says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Them being scattered didn't silence them. It just expanded their influence. And so James knew about what it meant to experience trials as we get ready to look at that. But I also want to point out that this was a group that was so early in Christianity. James is one of the first epistles that's written that they didn't have Romans. They didn't have the letter to the Galatians dealing with legalism. They didn't have the letter to the Romans dealing with the simple uh, basic doctrines of salvation. They didn't have the book of Hebrews that we just studied that explained that Christ fulfilled everything in the law and everything in the temple was about him. They didn't have that. So they were tempted to go back. My button's not working. Jesse, can I get the next slide? So why did James write to them? Well, they had problems. He wrote them to encourage them, but he wrote to them because they had problems. Their faith was being tested, and faith is always tested. It always becomes this tension between what I believe and what I'm experiencing in the world that causes us to ask the hard questions. They were being tempted to sin. The world was very enticing to them. I could either trust this Jesus and deny my flesh, or I could just do whatever I want and feel good for the moment. Uh, Believers were practicing favoritism. Those that had money got treated better by the leadership in the church, right? 
that still happens. Favoritism is a very real thing. There was competition for power. Those that thought that they were, should be leaders, they wanted to be leaders, and it made them kind of butt heads with those that had been called to be leaders. And many had a walk that didn't match with their talk. You had people that professed one thing and lived another way. And many were walking away from the faith altogether because of just the mess, the persecution. It, when it costs you to be a Christian, it causes you to say, do I really believe this or not? And, and for us, I think sometimes it's harder to be a Christian than for those that are persecuted for their faith. I read a uh, newsletter this week um, from somebody that uh, was interviewing somebody from China. And what it said was, oh, no, it was the Eastern Bloc nations. I can't remember where it was, but it was somewhere where it's not legal to be a Christian. And they said, you know, the Americans were telling them, hey, we're praying for you guys that you would remain steadfast in the faith. And they said this interesting thing. They said, don't worry about us. Thank you for your prayers, but we're praying for you because we think it's actually harder for you because it is legal, because it is easy to get comfortable, and it's easier to compromise because no one's calling you to question whether or not it's worth it. What does it cost you to be a Christian? Do people hate you because of it? Not most of the time. It's, it's legal. And so the reality is, uh, for us, maybe we don't experience that tension. But I, I want to point out that these, all these things, if you look at them, don't you think that these are thing, things that are present today in our church? In our churches and in our nation in our time? Uh, people's faith are being tested. And most people are actually going the way of, eh, it doesn't really matter. And then uh, they're being tempted to sin. And the church is starting to teach that there's no such thing as sin. Ah, is that really sin or was that a cultural thing? And they're starting to call good evil and evil good. And so woe unto those people. And then believers, uh, we, we do practice favoritism. Jesus said, great, you can love those that can pay you back. How about you love those who can't pay you back? And then uh, we compete for power. And many people have a walk that doesn't match their talk. So this tension in the church causes us to say, what do we really believe? Where do I really stand on these things? So what's the main problem? Well, the book of James teaches that the main problem in the church that makes us the least effective and have all these problems is actually immaturity. Spiritual immaturity. Spiritual apathy, but mainly spiritual immaturity. Age, as a Christian, does not equal maturity. I've met many who are old in the faith, been walking with the Lord way longer than me, that still are missing out on the basic principles of Christ. So the main source for most of the problems is actually the people in the church, they're spiritually immature Christians. So what do we do about it? It's time to grow up. It's time to deal with these things. I put there for you a picture of a baby reading a book, How to Grow Up. That's us. If only, and I liked what, you, what was said this morning, I wish there was a book that was written that taught us how to grow up. There was. Basic instructions before leaving earth. You guys have heard that before. But the Word of God has given us, First Peter writes, everything that pertains to life and godliness in Him, Christ Jesus. And so uh, what's the best way to grow up? Let's go back to the basics. Most of James is reflected. It's just basically the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 
through chapter 7, but it's basically summed up in the book of James. And so much of it is very difficult. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you ever heard anybody say, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. Wow, that's impressive. Because Jesus called for a very high standard. But the book of James is really no different. And much of James is just a reflection on that. So we need to go back to the teaching of Jesus. So here's the thing I want to point out, though. James is very logical. James is very practical. But James, what he teaches, is impossible to live out to a person that does not have the Holy Spirit. To anyone that's not been born again. And if you look at James chapter 1, verse 18, he points this out. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creature, creatures, not creatures, creatures. So first fruits means we must be born again, not by the water, which is natural birth, right? Your water breaks, you have a baby. But the second birth, which is a birth that is by the Spirit. The Spirit of God meets with the truth of God. It impacts your heart so much that you desire to repent and believe and be saved. That's where new birth starts. That's where it starts. If that is what you're banking all of your Christianity on, that one day I got saved at camp 20 years ago and there's never been any fruit from then, you're an immature baby still. You're still drinking milk. But God wants us to grow to maturity so we can eat meat. Meat is what makes us strong enough. Meat is what matures us and gives us muscles and gives us the ability to flex and do things. True faith works. Works don't save us. We're going to find that out. James writes, faith without works is dead. If you say you have faith and yet there's no example of it, there's no reality of it in your life, the reality is your faith is dead. It's not real. It's just words. It's a billboard with with promises. It's false advertisement. And so how do we grow up? We need the Spirit of God. So problems, immaturity, and tension in the church caused by immaturity. Uh, These can't be good, can they? Well, let's read verse uh, 2 through 8. He says, My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. So I would submit to you that problems and immaturity and tension are actually opportunities. And I have for you there one of my favorite things. I printed that up on the lower right hand of the screen. It's the word fail. I don't like to fail. I don't think many of us do. But failure is the first attempt in learning. If you fail and you see it as an opportunity to learn from your failure, then it's not wasted. But if you fail and you refuse to be taught by it, then it's wasted, it's futile, it's in vain. So he says, count it all joy when you experience trials. 
How many of us, don't have to raise your hand, love trials? You like when life gets uncomfortable? Yeah, me neither. I hate it. I'm kind of a perfectionist. I'm kind of type A. I like to get the thing done, move to the next. Get the thing done, move to the next. But does life work that way? Absolutely not. Proverbs says that it rains on the just and on the unjust. That all experience trials, all experience problems. All of us. So it's what we do with them that actually either benefits us or hurts us. Trials squeeze us. They press down. And what comes out of us in those trials proves what's in our heart. We're like tubes of toothpaste. If you got a tube of toothpaste and you squeeze it, what's going to come out? Toothpaste. Hey, I came up with that on my own. But if you got a heart full of bitterness and you get squeezed, what comes out? Bitterness and nasty. But if you got a heart full of love and patience and joy and peace, the fruits of the Spirit, and you get squeezed, what comes out? What's in there? The fruit of the Spirit. So the question becomes, are you more interested in comfort or in character? I read that this week and realized that if I answered honestly, I like comfort. So I got my chair with the feet to kick back. And that's why I got my temperature set just at the right temperature. That's why I got my, my, my house is, you know, it's my little sanctuary. And I don't let everybody else's problems in. This is my space. But the reality is, is that God is constantly allowing, at the very least, he is, there is no trial that comes into your life that doesn't come through his hand that he didn't allow to be there. I won't say that he always causes them, but if he wanted to stop them, he would. But he lets them come in. Why? If you're God of love, why would you let this come into my life? What we find out from the book of James is that he allows it to come in for our joy. He allows it to come in to build character. He allows it to come in because he's trying to produce in you and I something that cannot be produced when our lives are just going fine. I'll confess to you that I pray way more when my life is hard. I pray way, I pray way more when I'm in pain. I pray way more when life stinks. That's just reality. Now, will God listen to your prayer when you only pray in pain? Yes. And if you were thinking no, that's because you're legalistic and you think God loves you based on how good you are. Think about that. But does God want us to pray all the time? Yes, he loves us. He, he likes our voices. Think about how you are with your own children if you have children. Think about how you are with your cousins. Think about how you are with those that you love. You just like to hear their voice. Sometimes I just call my wife on lunch, not because I got anything to say. I just want to hear her voice. I miss her, you know? So with that being said, God loves us enough to allow trials. So when he says count it all joy, it's a financial term that means to evaluate. We evaluate the things that happen to us, right? Is this for my good or for my bad? And we always are, have this tendency to assume that, did I do something wrong? Now, sometimes you, it is. You did something wrong. You're experiencing the consequences. But sometimes it's just because... God's trying to produce in you something that won't happen unless the heat's turned up a little bit. You can't boil water and cook the mac and cheese without heat. Do you think, you know, that's the reality. And, and so 
How you see trials fashions how you respond to them. Do you see them as an impetus or as a potential to produce faith and patience in you? Or do you see them as just another time where you just got uncomfortable and you're bitter about it? I will confess to you that I've spent the last 12 years getting mad about every little trial. And the Lord's been showing me just over the last month, don't you think that I'm in control and that I've allowed this thing and that I love you enough that if I wanted to keep it from you and it wasn't good for you, I'd keep it away? And I'm finding out that, yeah, that's, that is the case, that he cares. So are they problems or are they opportunities? And then he says, no. He says, count it all joy and then know this. There are some things that you and I need to know. There are some things that God doesn't give us the privilege to know. But he says, knowing this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So if you want a reason to be joyful over trials, God is trying to grow you. Thank him. Be grateful. God loves you enough that he doesn't want you to remain a spiritual infant. And then what is your life goal? Is it comfort or character? I already said that. So we need to count it all joy. We need to know that it's going to produce something in us. And then we need to let. You ever heard, uh, let God be God? You know, let God be God. He says there, um, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God wants to make you complete. He wants to make you perfect. The word perfect there means whole. We all have, you've heard this, I know you have, a God-shaped hole within us. And our propensity, our tendency is to go, hey, cookies, that'll fit. Boom, we jam it in there. Well, that didn't make me happy. Okay, relationship. Bam. Well, that didn't make me happy. That added to my problems. Okay, and then we just keep stuffing things in there like a trip. You ever go on a trip and you're like, I might need this and I might need this. And, I might... and then the next thing you know, you can't go anywhere because you got so many bags. And all of them become more of a burden than a blessing. It, it would be so much easier to go on a trip, go to Dollar Gen, grab a few things and be done. The traveling becomes a lot more light and easy. And if you lose it, who cares? But we jam things in there trying to fill the God-shaped hole with cookie dough. And the Lord's like, I got steak for you. I've got me. I want you to fill yourself with me. And if you'll fill yourself with me, then you can be content because I don't change. I don't give you heartburn. I don't add the pounds. You know, I don't break your arm when you're working out too much. I don't, I, all those things we try to fulfill, find fulfillment in, they cost us more than they gain us. But he says, if you'll, if you'll let patience have its perfect work, you will be perfected and complete. You'll be whole. You won't be lacking anything. You'll be content. He says, if any of you asks for wisdom, let him ask of God, or lacks wisdom, ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So he says, count it all joy. Know that it's going to produce a new character. And then he says, let patience do its thing. If you're going to have to go through the trial, you may as well gain something from it. But then he says, ask. When you're in the trial, ask not to be taken out of the trial, but ask for wisdom in the trial. Because if you will ask for wisdom, and you will ask knowing that God desires to give it to you, 
then he'll give it to you. And it says liberally. The word means overflowing. He won't just give you a little nugget. He'll give you a bucket and he'll dump it on you. And when he gives you that bucket, he'll give it to you and he won't despise you asking. How many times have your kids asked you for something? You're like, okay, you can have it. But you kind of like didn't really want to give it to them because you're just tired of an asking. But in the meantime, he, it says there, he doesn't despise when we ask. So with that being said, he goes on to say, ask for wisdom and God will give it. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts that God will give wisdom is like a wave of the sea driven and, and tossed by the wind. It'd be like a person that says, Lord, I want to have wisdom. And then it takes too long. And so you're like, okay, well, I'll ask so-and-so instead. We do that, right? He didn't give us wisdom quick enough. The microwave took 34 seconds instead of 30. So we're not willing to wait for the wisdom. And then we go, you know what? God's kind of waited, so I, I bet I need to go find it on my own. And then we go to a psychiatrist or we go to uh, something that will make us feel better in the moment. Or we go to somebody that doesn't even know the Lord, doesn't have any wisdom. We go to the world to look for wisdom. We start watching Oprah, you know, or Judge Judy or, or whatever, instead of going and saying, Lord, I know that you are the sum of all wisdom. Please give me wisdom because I don't feel good right now. And I know this is something you're trying to produce in me patience, but I don't know how to interact. I'm stretched. And then he'll give the wisdom liberally. So the trial isn't wasted. So the question I have for you during this introduction is, how is your faith lately? If you have faith in Jesus, then this faith is meant to get you through this world, through this life, to the other side, to eternal life with him. So is your faith currently overcoming or are you weak in trials? Is your faith currently victorious over sin or are you constantly de being defeated by the same things? Is your faith evident to the world or is it just talk? Is your walk not lining up with your talk? Number one, there's a grace note. You're not alone. If you're the one that says, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm failing, I'm barely making it by, you're not alone. J James is the letter that you and I need. And then, we have to be willing to be honest with ourselves. As you read this book, you're going to be tempted to go, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Let James check your heart. Let James really get down to the depth and be honest with God. Be honest with yourself about how you're actually doing. And that's how God will then cause you to repent and he'll change your thinking. And now we have an opportunity together to grow up. But if you just come to the Word and you go, hey, I'm doing pretty good, and you walk away, you're going to miss out on the blessing. But growth hurts. My daughter, once in a while, just goes, Daddy, my legs hurt. I said, Lucy, you're growing. She goes, but my legs hurt. I'm like, look, you're not going to grow much, so just embrace it. You know, you're, you got my jeans. You're going to make it about four feet. You're going to stop. You're going to be like, why can't it be taller? Taller hurts. Maturity hurts. Stretching hurts. But it's so good. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us enough that you supply the bread and the water and the wisdom that we need to grow. Thank you that you allow trials, though we hate them. I hate them. But thank you that you're producing in us faith and character to your glory. 
Help us to continually count those things as joy. Not necessarily that we got to pray for trials, but help us to embrace them as your loving kindness to grow us. Help us to let those things work in us. Help us not to quench the Spirit, but to embrace the Spirit's work of continually transforming us into the image of Christ. The character of Jesus was proven in how he withstood trials. Lord, we want to be a witness to the world, but we don't want to be uncomfortable. But when we are uncomfortable and life stretches us, that's when people see Jesus in us. So Lord, help us not to get in the way of how you're trying to witness through us. And in the meantime, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom to walk worthy of the calling you've placed on our lives. Give us the ability to embrace the season that we're in and to be content. And give us the ability to trust you more than anything. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.